Good morning, church. Everybody with a microphone on Easter gets to say, He is risen. We know that one. I'm going to teach you another one. I'm going to say, Praise the Lord, and you say, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm going to say, Hallelujah, and you say, Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. There it is. You guys are good at that. It's so exciting, isn't it, to worship together on Easter morning. At least we should be really excited today. Today we celebrate Christ's victory over death, over sin, over hell, over Satan, and we revel in the joy of new life in the Spirit. Praise the Lord. Not only do we get to celebrate Christ's resurrection as the first fruits from the grave, but we get to celebrate our own spiritual resurrection as we're found in Him. Hallelujah! Today we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount in a text worthy of Easter. And in it we find some of the most profound and challenging teachings of Christ in the sermon. I don't know about you, but I have found chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew personally convicting in the strongest sense. It draws something out of me every week. It points something out in my heart. It seems like Jesus leaves us no excuses, right? His words pierce right to the sin lying deep in our hearts. And a metaphor that I've been using throughout this series has been that of a race, even a marathon. And in Matthew chapter 5, if it were a foot race, then now as we approach verses 38 through 48, In this marathon, we approach a mountain. This is the big mountain on our marathon, the hardest part, maybe. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, and stand together as we read the Word of God. Again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. This is the Word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said... An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's be seated and pray. Lord, we are overjoyed this morning to worship together, to proclaim the truth that you have risen. Lord, let that sing in our hearts now as we approach your word. Let it be our our guiding thought, our joy. And Lord, now we ask for wisdom and understanding. 
We pray that you would mold our hearts and mold our lives around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord has brought us to the mountain. Matthew 5, 38 through 48 contains some of the most famous and most convicting verses in all of the Bible. We know the phrases that come out of it, right? Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. They're all phrases that are in the common Christian lexicon, but Jesus' words here can't be boiled down to mere slogans and platitudes. Last week, we looked at three of the six sections in Matthew 5 that include the formula, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Remember, there's six total. And this week, we find the last two statements with that formula. And once again, they're connected to each other. They both concern the Christian attitude toward other people, non-Christians. The attitude those in the kingdom of heaven should have with those who are not in our tribe. In a very literal sense, they both talk about our attitude toward our enemies. These are kingdom attitudes, kingdom ways of living, and both of them are challenging, convicting, and revealing when they are brought to bear upon our hearts. So let's take a closer look. In the kingdom of heaven, Christians are to first relinquish their rights. Verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Here in verse 38, Jesus quotes Exodus 21, 24. And he's referring to a principle built into the law of Moses. This is the principle of righteous retribution. And it was put there to guide judges that Moses would set up to make just decisions. In fact, in the immediate context of that passage in Exodus 21, the law is not addressing individual Israelites. It's addressing these judges. This was the punishment judges were supposed to hand out to offending parties. The law was in place for a very good reason. So without a righteous judicial system, a right understanding of righteous retribution... Society degenerates into blood feud, right? Without an eye for an eye, things begin to escalate. You injure my hand, so I cut off your hand. And so I come back and I cut off your arm, and so you cut off my leg, and so I cut off your head, and so on and so on and so on, right? We see this type of escalating justice in parts of the world where there is no law and order. I'm reminded of the famous feud between the Hatfields and McCoys, if you're familiar, in the 1800s. Gang warfare is also centered on the idea of escalating justice. But God's righteous law cuts that type of justice off at the knees. Justice in the nation of Israel would not be found in blood feud or grudge. It would be taken care of through the principle of righteous retribution, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And then it's over. So the principle had to do with how judges were going to judge justly in the nation of Israel. And we still use this sense of justice today in our world. Again, righteous retribution is a necessary part of a lawful society. Jesus is not saying that this law is bad. 
If you crash your car into mine because you are driving under the influence, the powers that be have the right to punish you according to your crime. Right? And if you maimed me in that accident, no judge would require you to be maimed in the same way. But you would be ordered to pay damages and you might face jail time. And that was the same at the time of Christ. The law of retribution had also moved away from a literal eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth to money and damages and time paid. So we shouldn't misunderstand Jesus' point here. He's not poo-pooing a justice system that God had set in place. This is important. We're talking about individuals. Jesus is talking about individual Christians. He had not come to abolish the law, remember. He had come to fulfill the law. We learned that back in verse 17. But the scribes and Pharisees, this is where Jesus comes in. The scribes and Pharisees at his time had taken the law of righteous retribution and moved it from the realm of law and courts to the realm of personal relationships. So they had widened the law to include themselves within it individually, a right to claim damages on anything and everything. And it created a culture of resentment and envy when God intended the law to provide the justice system a way to prevent blood feud. Are you tracking? You with me? Okay, so the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they had taken this principle for court systems, and they'd said, okay, uh, if you trample on my petunias, I'm going to step on your daisies, right? That's the idea that Jesus is fighting against here. Personal rights to retribution. God is concerned with our personal relationships. And instead of putting others first, the nation of Israel used this law to put themselves first, to justify their selfishness. They believed that they had the right to retribution and retaliation in every aspect of their personal lives. But Jesus has a better path for those in the kingdom. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, we've encountered some statements in the Sermon on the Mount so far that have brought some questions to mind, right? These what about questions? What about righteous anger? What about taking an oath in court and so on and so forth? But here in 39, we encounter something that may immediately make us stand up and object. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. But what about the active shooter? What about the home invader? What about Hitler and the Nazis? Right, we immediately jump to these questions because they're really good questions. But like the other times we've wanted to ask these questions, we need to stop ourselves. We need to wait and let Jesus what he's saying, let it wash over us. Let the weight of Jesus' words sit on you. We need to dwell in the uneasiness here. We know that this is the word of God, right? Amen? This is the word of God and that Jesus himself is God. Amen? 
He's not telling us something wrong. So this gives us an opportunity to open our hearts to the Lord in order to be shaped by him. Do not resist the one who is evil. And then Jesus gives us four examples of what he means. First, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. All right, we know this saying pretty well, turn the other cheek. And typically, we understand this to mean that we shouldn't retaliate. We shouldn't hit back even though we really want to. But that's not the fullest understanding of turn the other cheek. A slap on the cheek was an insult. It's interesting that Jesus mentions specifically the right cheek. Do you notice that? If you wanted to slap someone on the right cheek and you were facing them and you were right-handed, you'd have to backhand them. Okay, which even today carries insulting connotations. So to turn the other cheek in this instance means primarily that you're willing to suffer further insult. Of course, a slap hurts. So Jesus is also saying that Christians ought to be willing to suffer insulting bodily harm, like a slap for the sake of the kingdom. Some commentators even speculate that this slap represents the slap given by rabbis to heretics. Maybe that's historically true, but even if it isn't, the, the, the rightness of that statement rings true in light of Jesus' words. Christians are supposed to be willing to suffer further insult without insulting back. It would be safe to say that we're not very good at this. In our current cultural situation, we have all too often been participants in retributive insult. It doesn't take very long to read through Facebook comments to see this. If we find the world is insulting us Christians, our first instinct is not really to turn the other cheek, but to roast them back. But setting aside our cultural engagement, how are we doing? How are you doing with suffering personal insult? How do you do with that? As we examine our hearts against this saying, we need to ask do we actually turn the other cheek? Would we be willing to turn the other cheek if somebody back, backhanded us? Or are we, are we quick to slap back, even to escalate the situation? Jesus calls us to give up the right to retribution in the face of insult. Let me say that again. Jesus calls us to give up the right to retribution in the face of insult. Next, Jesus says, If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Here we see an example of that petty lawsuit culture playing out where retributive justice was taken so far. And we're given a glimpse of a person who is being sued for the very clothes on his back. Is that person supposed to file a countersuit? Are they supposed to offer a great fight against the evil one here? No. In fact, Jesus says not only to give them your clothes, but to offer your cloak. Now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us in our culture because we're pretty much removed from first century Israel. 
But in Exodus 22, we find that the one thing that someone could not take from another person in a lawsuit was their outer garment, their cloak, which doubled as a blanket. You couldn't take it. It was against the law. It was impossible for someone to sue you for your cloak. If they even borrowed it, they had to give it back by nightfall. But Jesus tells his followers to willingly offer up their cloak to the person who is suing them for the rest of their clothes. Better to go around naked and humiliated. Even these things that we consider our rights by law, Jesus says, we need to lay them down. Jesus lived in a litigious society, and so do we. We've all heard of frivolous lawsuits, but that should not be the way for Christians. It's better to suffer personal injustice than to claim a right to retaliation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7 about lawsuits, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That is so radically different than how we typically approach things, isn't it? That should be our attitude in the face of personal injustice. Next, Jesus says, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. This is where we get the saying, go the extra mile. Usually we understand that to mean that we need to put in a little bit of extra effort when we do things. But again, the cultural context really fills out what Jesus says here. Because in in Roman provinces like Israel, Roman soldiers had the right to conscript anyone into carrying their bags or whatever they had for them to carry at least one mile as understood by the empire of Rome. The law said you had to go that length and no further, but you had to do it. There was a, a political party at the time known as the Zealots. The Zealots hated Rome. They hated the occupation in Israel from Rome, and they were always seeking to overthrow that occupation. And they hated this law. This is one of the main things that they couldn't stand. They saw this as forced labor, as temporary slavery, and it was. It was. The Romans had the right to force any Israelite into temporary labor. We see this played out in Luke 23, where Simon of Cyrene is conscripted into helping Jesus carry the cross. That's what happened there. But unlike the zealots who would have fought back against the demand on their time, Jesus says Christians, members of the kingdom of heaven, should go beyond the minimum. Christians should go another mile, double the amount demanded by the law. You see, Christians are supposed to be generous with their time, self-sacrificial. In other words, Christians have no right to their time in the kingdom of heaven. And finally, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Christians are not just called to be generous with their time, but they're supposed to have an attitude of genuine generosity. They're supposed to hold their possessions with open hands, with a willingness to give to the needy. In other words, Christians have no right to their money. Maybe you've observed a theme 
in all four examples. The main point that Jesus is trying to get us to understand in verses 38 through 42 is this. His followers have no rights. They have no right to retribution. They have no right to their possessions. They have no right to their time. They have no right even to their money. Christians understand that all things, even their very lives, belong to God alone. Our attitude toward other people should not first be motivated by our rights. And if we're going to understand this passage properly, then we have to understand how Christians are supposed to be motivated. What is supposed to motivate us if not our rights in society? So we're going to borrow a phrase from the next section. Jesus says, love your enemies. What motivates us to claim no rights when it comes to the one who is evil? Love. Love demands that we not slap back. Love demands that we give sacrificially. Love demands that we suffer injustice and personal injury. It's the law of love that Jesus is trying to press upon us. We do not claim the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We claim, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the law of returning love for evil. And why? Why would we do that? Why does Jesus want his followers to do that? Because this is what he did. We follow our Lord, our King, in this example. Jesus was slapped across the cheek, but he did not retaliate. His clothes were gambled away, but he didn't call down fire from heaven. He was forced to carry his cross to the hill of Calvary, and he submitted. And who did Jesus turn away when he was asked for help? We follow the law of love because that means following Jesus. He is our king, and we do what our king does. Amen? We should need no greater reason. Do we want to be like Jesus? Well, here you go. This is what it looks like. It looks like a willingness, willingness to lay down our rights for the sake of love, even for those who only deserve righteous retribution and only want our harm. Now, each of these statements have been used to justify or provide ammo for all kinds of political views. But we have to remember Jesus is talking about the appropriate response that Christians are supposed to have in light of personal insult and injury. Personal insult. So let me be really clear. Jesus does not mean that we shouldn't resist evil in general. Nor does he mean that we shouldn't resist the evil one understood as Satan. James tells us in his letter to resist the devil. So Jesus is not contradicting that. And as far as the obvious what about questions go, I'll say just a few words. Jesus does not mean that we cannot defend innocent people. Or defend even ourselves in light of physical attack. His words bear more upon religious persecution, although I say that, and this should give us pause, right? 
We should think through what it means to defend ourselves, starting with Jesus' words and not our rights. It doesn't give us complete license. We need to think wisely about self-preservation and self-defense being informed first by the words of Jesus. And he's not necessarily precluding Christians from military or police service as some Christian pacifists has taken his words here to mean. But again, his words should definitely give us pause in relation to these things. We need to do everything from the starting point of Jesus's teaching. We can't assume those things are exactly what Jesus wants for us. We have to think through them really well. In verse 42, Jesus calls us to radical generosity to the poor. This should be our starting attitude. We have no right, no claim upon our own money when God is calling us to give. However, love and wisdom need to guide us properly in how we help the poor and what we give to those who ask from us. Without wisdom, following verse 42 would quickly lead to self-impoverishment and could harm those we're trying to help. For those interested in the topic on how to think thoughtfully through mercy ministries, I recommend the book, When Helping Hurts. When Helping Hurts. It's a very thoughtful book on how to follow this command. I'll wrap up this point by saying if we're motivated more by our rights than we are by the love of Jesus in all these things, then we've misunderstood his teaching. We've been given wonderful rights in this country. Praise the Lord. That's good. Some of which allow us to meet today. But given the choice to lay down those rights or to lay down the love of Jesus, we need to be the people who lay down our rights. Like Paul said, why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? But also, why not suffer insult? In the kingdom of heaven, self-interest and self-preservation do not rule. Those aren't the rules of that society. Christ rules. So why not suffer loss? For the sake of the kingdom. What is greater in our hearts? What is greater? The kingdom of heaven or our rights? Second, Jesus says that in the kingdom of heaven, Christians are to love their enemies. Jesus has been taking us on this race and marathon through Matthew chapter 5. And I've, I've used that language over and over again, but... Now, upon this mountain we've climbed, we've, we've gotten pretty high up. We can see the top, and it's not been an easy climb. Verses 38 through 42 are pretty difficult stuff. But now we can see it. We can see the top, where he's taking us. And Jesus is going to drag us up to it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Last week, Jesus quotes a summary of the teaching of the Pharisees. Maybe you'll remember that. 
Twice he does this. Leviticus 19.18 tells us to love our enemies. But again, the Pharisees and the scribes developed a whole tradition around this verse. Okay, so once again, Jesus quotes a summary of the teaching of the Pharisees. Love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They didn't even include the, the full quote from Levit- Leviticus 19, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's not even in the summary statement. Instead, they took this mention of neighbor as license to hate all of those they saw as not fitting that description. So what's at issue is a definition and an understanding of neighbor. And Jesus will tackle that, that poor understanding of the word in the mind of the Pharisees in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In that parable, Jesus shows that everyone is our neighbor. Everyone, even the people we don't expect to be. But here, right here, Jesus takes a little bit of a different route. Instead of correcting a bad understanding of neighbor, he calls us to a deeper righteousness. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now we're at the peak of the mountain. He tells us to love our enemies. And of course, an enemy is by definition someone you don't love. To love an enemy means to stop viewing them as an enemy and to start viewing them as someone deserving love. So what kind of enemies could Jesus possibly be talking about? Well, for the patriots of Israel, the zealots, it was Rome, right? For the Sadducees, it would have been the zealots. For the Pharisees, it would have been people like the tax collectors and probably the Sadducees and most other people too. For the normal person, it would have been the Samaritans. For the envious, it would have been the wealthy. For the powerless, it would have been the powerful. And for the have-nots, it would have been the haves. And for the insulted, it would have been the insulter. And for those who suffered injustice, it would be the abuser. And for the slave, it would be the enslaver. And so on and so forth. These were... There were enemies around every corner. Everyone was a potential enemy, and so it is today. It's amazing how easy it is to make enemies of people in our hearts. Someone can cut us off in traffic, and they become our mortal enemy for the next 10 minutes. Growing up, the San Francisco Giants were the enemy. I'm a Dodger fan. We called them the evil, hated, dreaded, cheating Giants. It feels good and right to hate our enemies. We like to have these groups we belong to. We like to have that us versus them, because then we can point the finger. But in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' followers are called to something much different. We're called to love our enemies. We're called to stop viewing people as our enemies and start viewing them as people created in the image of God. People Jesus died for, even Giants fans. But that's not the peak. This isn't the peak of the mountain. The peak of the mountain is Jesus' next statement Pray for those who persecute you. I'm borrowing this mountain imagery from the great John Chrysostom. 
an early church father. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the fourth century and uh, widely regarded as the best preacher of all time. It'd be cool to hear one of his sermons. We don't know if that's true. But I think it's a perfect metaphor. He says, praying for our enemies is the highest summit of self-control. Not only self-control, but love as well. To pray for those who persecute you means that as someone is actively hurting you, you call out to God on their behalf, wanting only their good. Notice what Jesus says next. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is what God does. This is what God does. He desires the good for those who reject him. Back in the Beatitudes, we read, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So being willing to suffer persecution makes you look like a prophet. But praying for those who persecute you make you look like God. Jesus says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Why would God do this? Why not immediately punish the evil farmer with a lack of rain? Because God is good and his love extends to the undeserving. Amen? But God's love goes beyond rain and sunshine. When we read the command to pray for those who persecute us, we're drawn to a moment at the cross. Jesus is splayed out on the wooden cross and Roman guards roughly grab his hands to drive nails into them, into the wood. And through the pain and suffering, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Something about that verse that we don't really ever notice in our English is that when Luke says that Jesus prayed, he used a word that could mean that Jesus continued to pray that over and over without stopping. As he's hung on the cross, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Who does he have in mind? The very people hanging him there. If you can't see yourself there, you should. So we're given this picture of a Savior who through the pain and suffering of the cross continues to pray. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Tax collectors, of course, loved the people that loved them. Everybody does. Tax collectors were maybe the most unlovable people in that society, yet they had people they could love back. And Gentiles, even even pagans, greet those who are their friends. But Christians are called to do more than tax collectors and Gentiles. 
We're called to follow our Savior, to turn to our enemy, to love them, and to pray for them. Our Father, our Father forgives those who cry out to Him. And that should motivate us to love our enemies, even those people who hate us. And our prayer should echo Christ's prayer. Father, forgive them. What does it mean to pray for your enemy? It it means that. Father, forgive them. We should desire that those who hate us would be saved. Amen? Is that true? It is, right? We Christians should desire that those who hate us individually would be saved. Because that's the point. That's the point of Resurrection Sunday. We should desire those who hate us that God would save them because on Resurrection Sunday we realize we were enemies of God and that the Son was sent to die for our penalty even while we were His enemies. Jesus loved His enemies. He loved them so much He took their burden, their sin, upon himself. And today, we celebrate the fact that that sacrifice was accepted. That's the significance of the resurrection. Jesus actually did, in history, conquer sin, hell, death, the grave, and Satan. And the payment he made for sin was sufficient for all sin. He rose from the grave as a sure sign of its acceptance. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Praise the Lord. Now the the charge to us from Matthew 5 is to go and do likewise. Verse 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This statement highlights a truth that has been hidden underneath the entirety of Matthew 5. We can't possibly hope to do any of these things, let alone be perfect on our own. Nevertheless, the call to perfection by Christ still stands. We can't be perfect on our own and we'll never achieve perfection in this world. But by the power of the Spirit, Christians are being conformed to the image of Christ. Do you believe that about yourself? And Jesus, the person we are being conformed to, is perfect. He is perfect just like his Father. And our understanding of perfection and what it looks like to be perfect means that we start with Jesus. Where we find a lack of Christ in our hearts, we repent. And we're going to keep finding that. And we keep repenting. And where we see change in our lives, real change, we should see Christ. This call to perfection is only achievable in Him. 
And it is the cross and it is the empty tomb that makes that possible. Let me say that again. It's the cross and the empty tomb that makes your sanctification possible. When we read verse 48, we should fall at the throne of grace and cry out to him for the help that we need. This is a high calling and we need him now. We have no hope of cleansing ourselves from anger or from lust or from faithlessness or from hate without the cross of Christ and without the ministry of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. We need him desperately. Matthew 5 only makes sense if the promise of the gospel is that we are transformed. We're given a new eternal life. That's what we're promised in Christ. At Easter, we celebrate Christ's resurrection. It's the greatest event in history, amen? Amen. But in Christ's resurrection, you should see your own, your own resurrection today. In Christ's empty tomb, we should see our own empty tomb. Because through faith in the gospel, we're united to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you believe the gospel today? If you don't, believe. Repent and believe. There is no hope of a good life apart from Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Isn't that Resurrection Sunday? The old is gone and the new is come, both in Christ and in you. You are united to Christ if you believe the gospel. Praise the Lord. All of this about loving the unlovable and laying down our rights, none of it is achievable apart from an understanding that you are now one with Christ Jesus. So let's pray and give thanks to the Lord for the empty tomb where we finally find peace with God and membership in his family. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for your sacrifice on the cross that you would love your enemies and even die for them. That you would show your love in that. Lord, that now we can understand love because of your sacrifice. And we thank you that your sacrifice was accepted, that you rose from the grave victorious over all the things that separated us from you. Lord, we ask now that you would help us to to be filled with joy in the truth that you have united us once again. That we're no longer lost and no longer separated. That we're no longer even marred by sin. But that we can live to you in holiness through the Spirit. We pray that you would reveal the things in our hearts that that we hold on to from a life before the gospel. We we repent of those things. We lay them down. 
today. We pray that you would renew us. We pray that you would free us from our addictions and the things that we are attracted to that we shouldn't be. We pray that you would free us from our rebellion and our slavery. Give us new life today, Lord Jesus. We need you. We need you now. Lord, we thank you. We worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.